what is your favorite part of working for the CIA? What was your least favorite part? And then did that give you an it? Uh, did that give you a taste of venture capital that you liked or something that you were like, oh man, this needs to be dr- drastically different. Uh, I'm not interested. Oh in my this. God. So. Disclaimer number one, guests and hosts drink on this show. And we ask that if you join us, you be of legal age and you drink responsibly. Number two, if you want to know about check size, stage, similar questions, this is the wrong podcast for you. On Drinks with a VC, we're all about digging a little bit deeper and getting to know the person behind the investment decisions. Hello, and welcome to season two of Drinks with a VC. Thanks for tuning in via whatever platform you are using. I'm Vic LaQuara, the co-founder and managing director of Green Cow Venture Capital. And I'm joined by my friend and co-hostess with the mostess, Bree Hansen, who leads BizDev for Brooklyn Associates. Hi, Bree. I am still here, people. Yes. So uh, we did not waste any time, you know, getting this season into high gear, did we? Frankly, I don't want to waste any time because we have so much to go into with our next guest. Uh, Absolutely. I am very stoked about our next guest. Uh, He just has uh, a crazy story uh, from bagging groceries at Kroger's in Detroit to getting an MBA from Stanford and working at CIA's corporate venture capital fund uh, to starting his own mobile gaming company. You'd be really hard pressed to find a career more diversified uh, than our next guest. I've had the pleasure of knowing him actually since he started the Virtual Good Summit and the Social Gaming Summit. And I've watched his career really take off in venture, first as a partner at Softtech Softtech VC, uh, now called Uncork, and now as the founder of one of the most prevalent pre-seed funds out there, Precursor Ventures. Welcome to the show, the pride of Cranbrook Kingswood High School, Charles Hudson. Wow, that's the best intro I've ever had. <laughs> Maybe we should just stop now. It can only go downhill from here. It only goes downhill. We've actually we've got that a lot. I got to tell you, I just think we have some very impressive people that make our job of introing them very easy. I don't know. That's true. I think so. You are impressive people. And Charles, you are very impressive. Um, we're really happy to have you on here. What did you choose as your drink of choice tonight? You know, I went with the Manhattan. And there were some orange bitters that I had, which thank you for sending. And they really kicked it up a notch. I have to say, it was eye-opening. So I made a, I made a rye Manhattan with orange bitters. It's, I think I underestimated how quickly I would go through it, but it's quite tasty. <laughs> so uh, prior to... Charles, uh, you coming on to the show, we actually had one of the most active VCs on Twitter. Do you know Sheil Manat by any chance? Of course. I, so, of course I know Sheil Manat. Who yeah. doesn't know Sheil Manat? Who doesn't? And because um, he's all over the freaking world and he's all over Twitter. He's all over Clubhouse, all of these things. Twitch. Um, Justin every, Bieber videos. Justin Bieber <laughs> videos, all of that. Um, and And you are less active by that standard. But you also use social media uh, 
more so to promote others and to promote your portfolio companies. Um, but I don't think that means that you were any less popular. And I wanted to share two tidbits uh, with you, and then I want to get your reaction to them. Okay. The, the first tidbit, uh, I was on a community Zoom call, Brie, and it was put on by an LP of ours uh, and yours, I believe, uh, First Close Partners. And by the way, shout out to Ed, Betsy, Betsy. Josh, Teresia, Regina. Uh, they're amazing. They're massive supporters of ours. And by the way, if you're an underrepresented emerging manager uh, out there, they should really be your first call um, You know, to be an LP in your fund. Anyway, so I'm on the Zoom call with an amazing group of 50 plus bright, impressive individual investors. And then Charles pops on for his contributions on the panel. And there's this like whoosh of excitement and people are high-fiving and commenting on the call in the Zoom chat. And it is clear that, you know, Charles is the celebrity in the room and uh, everyone has a Charles Hudson story. Uh, And invariably they're saying things like, Charles helped me with blah, 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 or got to this point. And then the second tidbit is that uh, we were doing research ahead of the show and we came across a podcast that you recently taped with Brian Holland uh, and he titled it The Godfather of Pre-Seed Investing, a conversation with Charles Hudson of Precursor Ventures. Uh, You know, by the way, for all of you looking for another podcast to listen to, uh, Brian's The Road Untraveled is fantastic. Uh, But going back to that, what is your reaction to both of those things? I feel really uncomfortable. I mean, look, we're, you know, I'm really focused on trying to make the world easier and better for other people. Precursor was by no means an easy fund to raise, even though I had like tons of structural advantages. I went to like one of the VC schools twice, Stanford. I'd already been a partner at a VC fund. I knew a bunch of LPs and it was still very difficult. I wish there'd been a first close partners when I did Precursor. It would have made a huge difference in my fundraise. And I still am close enough to starting Precursor that I remember what it felt like when he was getting started. And I don't want everyone, you know, I think there's some people who are just like, I paid my dues. It was hard for me. So I want it to be hard for you. I'm not one of those people. I was like, it was hard for me and I hated it. I don't want that for anybody. I want to help people have an easier time getting their funds off the ground. So I try to help as many people as I can. And sometimes people just need encouragement. Honestly, Vic, they just, I catch somebody and they're down and they're feeling like maybe I should quit. And I'm just like, I was there too. You got to keep going. And like, you'll, you'll get through this. Sometimes people are just like, can you give me one or two LP leads? Cause like my well's a little dry. Um, can you look at my deck? And give me some feedback on the day. And so, I don't know. I feel like so many people helped me get started with Precursor. And, like, they didn't have to. I think they did it out of a sense of, like, pay it forward and, like, helping the next generation. And I definitely feel the same way about emerging managers because emerging managers are kind of almost by definition the future of venture capital. Most venture firms don't survive generational transfer. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, I think I know what your answer is going to be to this, but, you know, truthfully, are you more 
proud when you look back? Are you going to be more proud of the Godfather title uh, to be, you know, considered one of the best of in precede the goat in precede or, you know, the fact that so many people owe a part of their success or contribute, you know, directly say Charles was a part of my success and, and his mentorship and his direct help help helped us. Yeah, I think the latter, the helping people. Because, look, I think there's two people who I consider the godfathers of Precede, and that's Tim Connors at Pivot North and Manu Kumar. I think collectively they tweet five times a year. I'm a little tongue-in-cheek, but, like, they're very low-key about what they do. They are not seeking the spotlight. And so whenever someone says, you're the godfather, I'm like, you know, actually, Manu did this better than I did earlier. Than I've done it. I hope to someday get to the point where we have a portfolio like his. And same thing for Tim Connors. And those two gentlemen just, they don't seek the spotlight. They don't seek recognition. They just do the work. And so I always feel like it's important for me to recognize the people that I think were doing it before I was. And like without those two gentlemen, I don't know if I would have had the inspiration to do Precursor. Sure. Sure. I, there's such a persona and mystique um, around. Um, the celebrities of venture capital nowadays uh we always ask a questionnaire uh, we we ask you to fill out a questionnaire prior to coming on the show and one of our questions is sort of around what is the most misunderstood thing about you uh you said great question exclamation mark didn't answer it uh just kind of Thinking through that, uh, what is the most misunderstood thing about you? I said a great question, hoping you wouldn't ask me because I don't have a great answer. <laughs> I should have known better with I should have known better with this audience. Um, you know, I think um, it's really funny. I think a lot of people I talk to are like, "What you do seems so hard." You're picking these people that don't have traction and don't have revenue. I couldn't, a lot of my favorite co-investors, like, I couldn't do what you do. You pick these people from scratch. Isn't it hard? I'm like, I think it's the easiest thing in the world. Because you're just focused on the person and the quality of their idea and your sort of subjective reaction to them as an individual. It's not like I'm looking, combing through cohort charts or looking at financial projections. It's kind of like angel investing with leverage. And I think a lot of people think it's hard. And I'm like, for me, it feels easy. I meet 20 or 30 teams a year that I know, not instantly, but in fairly short order, that I'm excited about working with them, if they'll take our money. And it doesn't seem hard to me. Ironically, growth investing, like combing through spreadsheets and trying to figure out, like, is this data telling me what I think it's telling me? That feels to me way harder than picking people. Yeah. Yeah. What happens when you pick the wrong person? Uh, do you, do you take it personally? Uh, you know, I, I always wonder about this, right? Because you can look at the numbers and, and again, if you're a growth investor later stage down the road, you're, you're doing DCF, you're, you're analyzing their books, et cetera. Um, but because it is so people oriented and you're a people person, when the person kind of lets you down or if it doesn't work out, yeah. uh, how do you kind of work through that disappointment? I've been doing this for a while and I'm still learning. 
What I will say is I think there's a couple of different buckets. Sometimes we back somebody. They work incredibly hard. They pursue every angle for the business. And the conclusion is like they just picked a bad market or picked a bad product category. And they didn't fail due to a lack of effort. They failed because the category they were in didn't yield a great company. Or they failed because they were in a category that yielded a great company, but it wasn't their company. Someone else sort of... I don't, I don't feel bad about those. I feel bad for those people. Because, you know, failure hurt emotionally. It hurts for founders. The only time I feel really disappointed is if I feel like the level of effort... It's not about working 100 hours. It's really like, is your startup your focus? Are you really trying to crack the code and the problem? I only get really upset if I feel like the person didn't work hard enough on the idea to figure out if there was a there there. Mm. And, you know, we do 30 investments a year. And I'd say on average, there's one or two a year where when it's all said and done, I feel like the effort issue was one of the issues that kept the company from being successful. And I can live with one or two out of 30. Yeah. As a people person, which, I mean, I really can tell that you are one, how much can you, um, how much do you attribute to founder ego and how do you um, kind of make sure that you're not investing in someone who could become tyrannical as a founder? Oh, I'm quite certain I've invested in people that are tyrannical as founders. But I also <laughs> think that there's a like, as an aside, I think there's a, there are certain things as a founder where I think it's important to be somewhat authoritarian. Mm hmm because like you have a point of view. And I will say this, Brie, I've been doing this off and on for 20 years. I think the biggest change I've seen in founders is 20 years ago, most founders were completely comfortable being somewhere between a dictator and authoritarian on most things in the business. And like the common wisdom was like, that's how you build a good company. You have these like very driven, inflexible founders who will basically like trample over people to make magic happen. Probably great for the company, not great for the individuals who work there. And I've just seen a sea change in the last probably five years of founders being more mindful of bringing people along mm -hmm. and including them in the decision-making process, maybe more democratic. And I think that's generally good, except for the areas where the founders have unique expertise and where their unique expertise is necessary for the company. So we have some companies where it's like, it's okay to be borderline tyrannical about product. If you have all the product insights in the company and you have a vision for it, there's no need to delegate that. Just don't pretend that you're not being tyrannical about it. Sure. Uh, so I am always intrigued. You talked about being in venture capital off and on for the last 20 years. I want to go way back because I'm always interested in the road that people take before they get into venture. Uh, what was it like growing up in Southfield, Detroit? Wow. Um, you know, my dad worked for the auto industry. My mom was an attorney. I didn't know anything about venture capital. I didn't know anything about tech. I knew like law. I knew business. And that was it. Yeah. And culturally, like, I grew up in the northern suburbs of Detroit. And it's, it's a really different um, demographic profile in the Bay Area. It's mm. basically black people and white people. With a sprinkling, when I grew up at least, yeah. with a sprinkling of Asian people. And like, that's sort of what I knew growing up. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was like, I lived in this world that was like a mix of black and white people. At the time, Southfield was like just north of Detroit. Elements of it in retrospect were like quasi-rural because like the city hadn't sort of bled north. And I had such a limited view of what was out there. I just knew what people knew in Michigan. Yeah. And when I came to Stanford, I was like, oh, there's all this other stuff I've never heard of. Now, the crazy thing is Scott McNeely, the founder of Sun Microsystems, is an alum of Cranbrook Kingswood High School. So even in high school, I had an email address. And I sent a lot of email in high school. Now, most of it was like guys emailing girls in high school. Yeah. And he messages to each other from the library. Mm. But like I grew up sort of with like access to like Sun workstations and like email. And I sort of thought that was normal, that you can like go sit down at a computer and type out a message and send it to someone and they'll get it and they'll write back to you. Yeah. And um, I went to one of these like liberal arts, you read a lot, you write a lot, you argue a lot, kind of high schools, like the opposite of STEM. And I thought that's what the world was. Like you just like argued about ideas with other smart people. And that came to Stanford. I'm like, what's this computer science thing that everybody here seems to be like obsessed with? Yeah. And, you know, California has a very different racial demographic than what I grew up with. A very different also like wealth demographic. Because in Michigan, like you have earned wealth from the auto industry. Sure. Which is kind of employee wealth. And I got the bear. I was like, wow, these people, they have a lot of money. And my friend's like, yeah, his, that person's dad started this company. I'm like, oh, that's why they live in Atherton. Sure. Okay, like I see that. That's like a different that's a different mode than I grew up with. Yeah. But I mean, looking back, even before you went to Stanford, um, you know, I mentioned you were you're bagging groceries at Kroger's. Uh, what did you perceive, you know, what was your dream at that point? What did you want to become? I mean, I I grew up around entrepreneurship my whole life. I literally know nothing more than that. I was in Silicon Valley. And so I literally remember sitting in a pool and, and thinking to myself, oh, I, I really want to be a venture capitalist one day. I, I do. I absolutely do. Um, but when you're not exposed to it, minus Scott McNeely, uh, but what, what were you thinking? Where, where did you want your path to go at that point? I wanted to have my own business. Okay. So I had a paper route in high school and like it was a very easy paper route. It's pretty lucrative. I had a landscaping business where I did people's yards. It was a cash business. It was a really good business. And I also worked at Kroger bagging groceries. Um, and I quickly realized, I was like, I think I like working for myself better. Because I captured, I couldn't, I didn't have this vocabulary at 18. I was like, I'd prefer to capture more of the output of my own labor. Yeah. And so with my landscaping business, I could make more in two days doing that than I could make in a week at Kroger. And I set my own hours and I had my own book of clients. And I had this like, and my mom ran her own law firm. And so she would not describe herself as an entrepreneur, but she used to work for the government and she left and started her own law firm. Sure. And I was like, I kind of think I want to work for myself like my mom does. And my dad worked for one company, well, Ford Motor Company, then Visteon, basically for his whole life. And I watched my dad work in the corporate world and he was very successful. But I just remember when I was little, my dad would bring his like big briefcase home mm -hmm. with all these papers and he would like open his briefcase on like the TV table and he would like go through paper memos on the weekend. And I was like, wow. this seems like a lot of work. Yeah. So I just remember thinking this idea of working for myself is really attractive. Mm -hmm. 
And I need to find a way to make that my long-term plan. Is that where the curiosity to go to Stanford and, and come out West came, came about? So Stanford was the last school I visited and I got here and my mom, my mom was like, well, what's your criteria for where you want to go to school? I was like, I think I'm just going to pick the school where the students seem the happiest. That's probably a pretty good rubric for choosing a school. So like no shade to any other schools I visited on the East Coast. I didn't find the students at some of the big East Coast schools were that happy. Sure. They were like, I'm here because this is great for my future. I don't necessarily love being here. It's not a great community, but this was a good decision to make. And I went to Stanford, I'm like, these people are like legitimately happy to be here. They're having like the best time of their life. They're happy. They seem like warm. Even though when I showed up on campus, the person who was supposed to host me had no idea he was supposed to host me. (laughs) So I ended up sleeping one day in the lobby of one of the dorms. Yeah. And the other day I ended up sleeping on the floor in between a one-room double where these two guys were up, up on these beds. And I was sleeping on the floor just praying they wouldn't step on me when they got down in the middle of the night. They made a hell in spite of, of that, I still impression. Came. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but they did like, it smiling. <laughs> they were like, everyone I met was like, so happy to be there. They're like, the school's great. We love it here. It's not perfect, but like, we're really happy to be here. And um, I remember coming back and telling my parents, I'm like, I'm going to move to California, but don't worry, I'll come back as soon as I'm done with school. East Coast or Chicago, I'll be back and. 25 years later, I'm still here. Never looked back. Never looked back. Uh, when did you meet your wife? I know that you've, you've been married for, for six years, uh, but I don't know how long that relationship and, and where it started. Where did, tell us where it started. So my wife, it's really crazy. So my wife almost came to Stanford to run track. But she didn't. She went to University of Michigan instead. And she, I was like, think if we'd gone to school together. I was like, I was a huge loser and a nerd. You would have not have been interested in me. I like just studied and worked all the time. There's no way in which you would have like found me at all interesting. Trust me. Where did she grow up? Also in Michigan. You know what's crazy, Vic? We're the same age. We went to two private schools that are about less than a mile apart. Wow. We're the same age. I didn't meet her till California. Unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. And the crazy thing is, our son's godfather is her best guy friend from college, who also happens to be my cousin's best friend. Wow. Weird. So he basically one day was like, hey, my friend is coming out here. She's going to move to California for work. Her company's moving her out. You should meet her. And I kind of dropped the ball and did a good job. You were like your Stanford hosts, right? You made her sleep I know, on the totally. floor in the lobby. She was worried you were going to step on her. And then someone else reintroduced us later. A guy who lived near her in Atlanta, who played on my high school football team. And then I can tell you, this is like very San Francisco. The first time I met her it was uh, downstairs at 25 Lusk. Wow. And it almost didn't happen because I had this very, very... Talented but rigid admin. And my admin was like, uh, he has no time 
for like <laughs> seven months. Where were you now, working for a reason? She, I was working at Uncork. Uncork, okay. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was like, do, doing some stuff at Uncork and I also had my own startup. So I was like, oh, I was running my startup and I was a venture partner at Uncork. I'm like, this place is, con-, and the startup was at 139 Townsend. So I'm like, this is convenient. And for whatever reason, my admin copied me in that email. I'd sort of jumped in and was like, hey, I have a board meeting. I could move it around and like we can meet. And then we met and like kind of honestly, nothing happened right away. I was like, oh, she's like very good looking, very smart, really nice person. And then we just sort of like, she would like text me sometimes like, hey, me and my girlfriends are going out in San Francisco. You've been here basically forever. Where should we go? And I'm like, oh, this is my friend's bar. Like. I'll text him and like, you all can go here. And then much later we started dating and then we got married and now we have a four-year-old son. Now you have a four-year-old son. Mm-hmm. So I, romantic. Very, very romantic. <laughs> yeah, Brie, I almost, I almost screwed it up. Let's be clear. I definitely <laughs> almost screwed it up. I, I want to hear her tell this story because I feel like that's going to be a better story. No offense to you. I just, I feel like, she you're not wrong (laughs) she will she will tell us you know her perspective will naturally just have so much more detail in terms of all the ways that you could have screwed it up but you barely did out exactly you know like that would be fantastic by the way cheers to your wife brandy yeah right yeah and i did screw it i i i almost screwed it up several other times before we got married and since then i've like tried very hard to not screw it up to to not succeed but you're doing a a fantastic job thus far um wait what do you what do you like about her i just i want to know i'm a woman okay yeah um she's like really awesome um so she had a long career in sales I just think she's like a big advocate for our family. Mm. She like looks out for everybody in her family. She's a great friend. I'm not a great friend to all my friends. I wish I were. But Precursor is sort of this like black hole that sucks up all of my life. Yeah. My wife is like a much better friend to her friends. I like really admire that about her. Um, she's like really good with people. She's like really um, loving to our son. And she's really funny. Aww, like in a way, I'm definitely not. She's like really funny. She's a really funny sense of humor. That's really good for a man to say that about a woman because they always say that you know men don't appreciate women's sense of humor. But I love that you said that about her, and we're going to take this clip and send it to her on Valentine's Day. Yeah, that's absolutely. We should. I need all the help I can get, Bree. So thank you. <laughs> well, it's funny because I actually, uh, when I met Laura, she was very extroverted as and and she was the same kind of like brightness and energy that she brings to a room is something that attracted me to her and her sense of humor, all of these things. And I feel like I've been very lucky because she uh, lets me do my thing with green cow and, and it's not easy kind of running this, this fund and, and she does take care of a lot of the relationships and the, and you know, our kind of core, uh, a lot more so than I do, uh, which is, I'm very thankful for. It's crazy. So when I started Precursor, I kind of had the idea. And at Uncork, we had raised a fund fairly recently. And I went to my wife, I was like, you know, I have this idea for this other fund. It's probably not great timing 
yeah. to do this because we just closed the new fund and like maybe I should like do one more fund cycle before I go out and do this. And she was like, you already want to do precursor. I like just see the companies you get excited about. She's like, you already want to do this. And so I don't know how you're going to be good at your job if you don't go do this. And I was like, look, it's going to put a lot of stress on her family. I'm going to have like, I'm going to go from having like a good salary and like some money to no money <laughs> uh, I, for two years, which is really five years. Yeah. And I'm like, it's going to be really hard. And she's like, I want you to be happy. I think this is what you're supposed to do. I'm like totally supportive. And she's like, I want you to go do it. Like, she's like, you have to decide when, but I want you to do it sooner rather than later. Yeah. And that was like really important to me because I think otherwise I would have just <clears throat> gone through the rest of fun four and like made the decision to do precursor later. And I think honestly, that year was really crucial. Mm. Because that was the year when people went from like precursor is like the backwater adverse selection, like pre-seed and precursor both, is the backwater adverse selection category of seed to like, wait a minute, there might be something here. Mm. And I think that year in market made a big difference yeah. for the fund. Yeah. Big difference. It's uh, it's strange. We have a very similar, uh, I'm, I'm clearly behind a little bit but my wife looked at what i was doing and said hey you know you've you've got to uh do this this you have to follow your dream and and she lifted us up and she became kind of um you know that support function that, that brandy was for you back when uh which is I, I, this is a recurring theme of a lot of our guests, right? How their their partners have really um, given them given them the support that they need to kind of carry this out, and we're all very fortunate for that. And Vic, you know it is. Sometimes you like you take a red eye on Sunday, you go to the East Coast, yeah. you had twelve LP meetings, and you fly back on Friday at midnight, and you're like, "Fuck!" Excuse my language. <laughs> None of those people are giving me money. Yeah. I'm totally exhausted. And like, I was like not available. So my son was born basically a month after I had the clo the first close, the, the final close for fund one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm even more of a masochist, right? I decided we're going to start the fund and then we're going to get married two months later. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, you know. In retrospect, I probably would have timed it a little bit differently, but at the same time, uh, Props to our significant others for for giving us that flexibility and the freedom to pursue that. Um, totally. I, I want to jump to you at Stanford. You had interned at Excite at home. And then you you jump into this role as a senior associate for InQtel, uh, which for those who don't know, it's the CIA's venture capital arm. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite part of working for the CIA? What was your least favorite part? And then did that give you an, uh, did that give you a taste of venture capital that you liked or something that you were like, Oh man, this needs to be dr drastically different. Uh, I'm not interested. Oh in my this. God. So first let me tell you how I ended up at InQtel. Cause it's one of these like truly random stories. So when I worked at Excite, the way I ended up working at Excite was, 
there was a guy at the Stanford Coffee House who was posting flyers to work at Excite for a summer intern. I grabbed one of the flyers and emailed my resume. And the guy was like, you seem great. We need people. You start tomorrow. I was like, oh, okay. And I probably basically never saw that person again. He was like nominally my manager, but he was so busy. And I remember, like, that's why I'm like 21. I don't know anything about anything. So I'm like sitting in my cube trying to look busy. And fortunately for me, Amy Chang, who's like still a friend of mine today, came over and was like, basically she was like, you seem like a smart person, but no one is taking care of you. I'm going to adopt you as my mentee. So I started hanging out with Amy. And one day she's like, so what are you going to do when this is over? I was like, I'm going to go back to school for my senior. She's like, you should stay here and work. But what do you want to do longer term? I was like, you know, I think I'm going to either go do the very Stanford things, Bain, San Francisco, or Goldman, New York, TMT banking. <laughs> and oh if you let me tell a longer story. So I ended up interning at Excite. It was really fun. The people were awesome. I met so many great people that are still friends today. Raj Kapoor, Jeff Doniker. Um, we had so uh, Joe Krause. We had so many awesome people in our group, mostly through acquisitions and like internal hiring. It was like a lot of fun to be at Excite, Brett Bullington. And I remember I went to New York and interviewed at Goldman. And I was like, I don't know if this is the right job for me. Mm. And the team was like, you should talk to this like MD in our group. He'll set you straight. So I go meet with this guy, Vic. And I go to his office. It's one of those like big offices, corner couch. I sit down with the guy and he's like, so they tell me you have some reservations about this job. I'm like, yes. He's like, first off, I don't need you to take this job. He's like, there's a lot of other smart people, but my team says you're great. What's your biggest reservation? I'm like, I don't think you get much of a life in this job. Seems to me like all you do is work. He's like, I'm not going to BS you like they did. You're going to work a lot. And you're going to make some money. And if you get promoted, you'll make a lot of money. That's the deal here. If you don't want to do that, you totally should not come here. I was like, well, he's like, I can tell you this because like, I don't need you specifically to take this job. I need an analyst to fill this role. So like, I don't want you to take any probably got up and like walked out of his own office. And I was like, wow, at least he told me the truth. He didn't dissuade me to thinking because like, they were like, oh, it's fun. After your 2 a.m. when you're done with the model, you'll go out, hang out with your analyst class. And he was just like, no, it sucks. You work a lot. It's a lot of work. It's hard. <laughs> Don't let them glamorize. And I needed to hear that. Yeah. And so I went back and talked to Amy. And Amy's like, look, my husband, Gilman Louie, is starting this thing. He's like taking over InQtel. I think he needs some help. I don't know what he needs help with, but it's too much work for him to do by himself. Sure. I want you to have breakfast with him. And, like, talk to him. Yeah. And I went to him, and he was just like, some days you're going to go to Staples, some days you're going to meet John Doerr. Can't tell you which, what you're going to do on each day. <laughs> and he was a two-time, he was a two-time Clatterback founder, so he could actually credibly say that. Yeah. And I just, like, went home and told my parents, and like, what are you going to do? I'm like, go into Incutel. And they're like, What? <laughs> they're like you're not going to go to Goldman so ironically one of the people I was going to work for at Goldman is one of my friends in venture Nick Beim at Venrock yeah, Nick would have been the like mm. person I reported to in New York TMT banking 
And I told my parents, I was like, I feel like this InQtel thing will never come around again. I think if I go back to business school, I can maybe get back into the Goldman path. I can maybe get onto the consulting path. The CIA is probably not going to start another venture fund in my lifetime. Sure. I feel pretty comfortable saying that. And they're like, do you think it's a scam? I'm like, possibly. <laughs> not going to tell you like it's not a scam. It's possibly a scam. And Vic, the day I really thought it was a scam, our first office was a Regis in Foster City, kind of by the Visa Complex. Yeah. And I like, got off this elevator, and it was like a bunch of these like little small. I'm like, oh, this is totally a scam. <laughs> this is like this is Absolutely like Universal Exports. 100%. This is totally some James Bond, yes. like hundred percent scam. This is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And it turned out to be one of the best professional experiences I had in my whole life. I worked with amazing people. And to show you how naive I was, um, one day I went to Gilman. I was like, there's a bunch of VCs who don't know who we are. He's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to make a pitch deck on Incutel, and I'm going to go pitch a bunch of VCs. He's like, I'm going to put my laptop in my bag, and I'm going to go drive around Santa Rosa. I'm going to go pitch people on Incutel. Not knowing that VCs don't go pitch other VCs. (laughs) Yeah. And I think because I was so young, they were like, this is hilarious that this like, young kid wants to that, I, I literally was like, oh, do you guys do that? I've never heard of that practice. That's I, but it's, a it's, new best practice, a Charles Hudson special. Yeah. The hilarious thing was I ended up meeting all of these really senior people at other vendor firms who I, I think were like, A, partially curious about like, well, what's InQtel trying to do? Yeah. And B, they're like, I've never sat through another venture fund, come in and pitch our venture fund. So, like, I pitched almost the entire West Coast partnership of Greylock at, like, 23 years old on InQtel. Amazing. Which is totally ridiculous. But it was, like, such a great job. And you and I both got our starts at corporate venture capital funds. I was at SK Telecom. uh, And I remember, you know, needing to build our brand because SK Telecom isn't widely known in the United States. And what they are widely known for doesn't translate. And uh, so I just find that so just smart. Like, I didn't do that. I really should have. You know, I I tried to build our brand the right way and I I tried to do it. But I should have gone the Charles Hudson route of (laughs) pitch everybody, pitch people that don't even know why you're pitching them and, and roll with it because you just meet people. I was just so naive. And like also, we had this other context with InQtel, which was because we were a quasi-government agency, we never wanted to say, oh, we only talk to VC firms on the coast. Mm. There could be a great venture firm in Tennessee. Sure. And we would never want like the ranking senator from Tennessee to say, why isn't InQtel looking at companies? And sometimes like the best thing you can do is find the work that no one else wants to do. Sure. No one else at InQtel was going to go on the road and pitch the firm yeah. it wasn't interesting but i like was like oh this seems like a good use of time like it's a good way to like build a network i mean again speaking as an emerging manager one of the most useful times uh time spent for me is actually pitching other vcs on the value that maggie and i bring in green cap right and so i i think that translates extremely well um so look okay we're moving forward and in fact i actually want 
to jump through Ironport, through you as a BD manager at Google, you joined Gaia Interactive, uh, which is for for those of you who don't know, it's a virtual world back when tweens and teens. Uh, and then you decided, okay, I'm gonna find you know I'm gonna found my own mobile gaming company, yeah. Bionic Panda, and this was a couple of months before you joined Uncork. What in the hell made you go from the CIA and securities uh, kind of to Austin mobile gaming and you know massive multiplayer online social gaming and that whole world? So I'll tell you a crazy story. So when I was at Google, I went to a conference with my friend, David Finley. It was just when widgets were a big thing. I'm dating myself. Widgets, web widgets. <laughs> widgets. Oh, widgets, God. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was at this conference. I was like, this conference was bad. It was poorly produced. The speakers were not good. And David was like, no offense, you don't know anything about producing a conference. <laughs> I was like, touche. You're, you're right. I was like, I think I could do better than that. And so he's like, okay. So I called my friend who worked at Stanford. I was like, can you get me a venue on, again, talk about naive. Can you get me a free venue on Stanford any day this summer for a conference? And she was like, uh, no. (laughs) I was like, try harder. Yeah. (laughs) And she's like, look, we can sponsor your application to have Annenberg. And so the first virtual good summit was done in Edinburgh. When I started that conference, I knew nothing about running an events business. Sure. And I pinged my friend Susan Wu. I was like, Susan, I'm going to do this conference. She's like, oh, I'll help you. I'll invite all the people and we'll make it happen. I'm like, but what does that mean? She's like, oh, we'll throw up an Eventbrite page. We'll sell some tickets. We'll market it. So yeah, we set up this website. Yeah, so Susan Wu and I set up this website. And the irony is, like, this is before TechCrunch, VentureBeat, and GigaOM had events businesses. Yeah. So I just emailed my friend at TechCrunch. I'm like, I'm doing this conference in virtual goods. Would you guys promote it? They're like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> We're not in that business. Sure. So they promoted it, and we had a lot of people show up. So many. And, like, I knew nothing about, like, literally the night before that day that event started, I was, like, at Costco printing programs on paper. Till like three in the morning. I grabbed a paid attendee who's still a friend of mine in spite of this. And so I was like, I need you to help me. He's like, I paid to be here. I'm like, I know, but I kind of need you to help me get this thing off the ground. Sure. And we had this unbelievable set of people come and speak about virtual goods in the United States for the first time ever. It's Craig Sherman from Gaia. It was David yeah. Wallerstein from Tencent. We had like an incredible set of people come and speak. And every, we finished it, and I was, like, asleep on my feet. And everyone's like, this was amazing. When are you going to do this again? I was like, never, never <laughs> again. This was awful. Other than the money, it was awful. Yeah. And I sat down, and I was like, you know, there's some things we could do here to make this less painful. And so that's how the Virtual Good Summit got started, kind of as, like, a lark. Yeah. And through that, I met Craig Sherman, yeah. who was then the CEO of Gaia, who's now a partner at Meritech, who's done ridiculously well for himself with Roblox and a bunch of other companies. Yeah. And of all the speakers I invited, Craig was the one person who's like, I'd like to get to know you. So I was like doing this business on the side when I was at Google. 
And one day Craig was just like, I think you should come work at Gaia. Google, like, if you can do this on the side at Google, like, I think you'll have more fun at Gaia. I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, let's come work at Gaia. So I came to Gaia and it was super fun. Yeah. And that was my first time. I was like, oh, startups are my thing. There's like 40 of us at the time here trying to figure out these really hard problems. And this is so energizing and so fun. Yeah. I really like this. This is so much more fun than Google. I was like, I'm going to make probably less money and work more hours. <laughs> yeah. But the, but I'm like so much more energized. Because our BD and sales team was two people when I started. Yeah. It was me and Joe Herkin. Well, it was Joe Herkin that I joined him. And then we added like Susan Quo, who's now the CEO of Singular. Like, the team ended up being great. And through Gaia, I met so many amazing people. I was like, oh, this is part of what happens when you work at a startup. Mm. You meet these amazing people. And if you stay for two or three years, you kind of really get to know them. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I hope Craig won't be upset with me telling this story. One day I was in the parking lot of Gaia. We were trying to figure out what to do about the web and Facebook. Craig calls me and he says, I just heard from someone that Zynga is making a crazy amount of money on poker. Do you think it's possible? Poker and Facebook. I was like, I don't think it's possible. I know a lot about social <laughs> games. <laughs> that yeah. level of monetization, I actually don't believe is possible. I think someone's like selling you a bill of goods. Yeah. And he's like, okay, it seemed weird to me. Does it get out? I was wrong. Yeah. 100%. I was wrong. Yeah. It was, it was that good. And so I left Gaia and went to go work at this company, Serious Business, that was started by Alex Lay and Siki Chen. Yeah. And again, like had an amazing time there. And we sold that business to Zynga. And I was in that awkward tier of people that was not a founder, but not an IC. Sure. And there was just nothing for me to do with Zynga. Yeah, And so I called my buddy who ran engineering at Serious Business. And in 2010, we tried to build an Android-only games company. We probably started it, oh, I don't know, 10 years too early. Yeah. Was this, was this before, like, the burst of the app economy? No, no. The iOS app store was working. It was working. iOS had IAP. But yeah. when we started buying Panda, the Google Play Store didn't have integrated payments. Okay. We were getting paid through PayPal. Got it. Got it. In retrospect, I'm surprised we made as much money as we did. Yeah. Given the friction. Sure. But our right. bet was like, well, Google has to catch up someday. Soon someday. Yeah. And someday, Vic was the right answer. Not soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so both you and I actually had experiences both at SciWorld, which was SK Telecom's oh, yeah. property and social media, which, you know, had 98% penetration before Facebook really kind of came in. Um, and and you clearly had your experiences with Gaia and um, Bionic Panda. When you look at social gaming and you look at social web generally, right? Yeah. Um, whether it's TikTok or Clubhouse or Facebook and Instagram, um, you know, when I look back on it, it's hard not to understand and see kind of okay behind the curtain i know exactly what kind of levers people are trying to pull etc um you have a kid i don't have a kid you have a four-year-old who clearly probably if he's anything like all the other kids that i know that are the same age it's like they're picking up technology faster yeah they're they're learning the ins and outs of how things work etc um have you thought about 
what it's going to be like when he gets on social media and participates in social gaming and you know like what do you what is your stance on him playing yeah. those games in the future and yeah using those platforms we let him do youtube kids cuz that yeah. feels yeah it's a contained environment and we supervise him he does he loves khan academy wow um my biggest fear is that like generally speaking the internet brings adult life to you much earlier than you otherwise would expect. and everything yeah. like without getting too specific every every adult bad and or scary thing is accessible to you kind of in an unfettered fashion mm-hmm. at a at a time when maybe you don't know what to do with what you're seeing or hearing yeah so you know i don't I don't know, but I also just think I've met some of my friends' kids who are very skilled at Roblox. They understand the Roblox economy. And they understand, like, where their time is well spent and where their time is not well spent. Yeah. And I think that's a good... Th- like, it's funny. Like, we talk about screen time. I watched a lot of TV growing up. hmm It was, like, linear TV. But, like, I watched a lot of TV growing up. I think I turned out okay. So, I think it's this balance between, like... How do I keep my son from like venturing into like corners of the internet that are just not appropriate for him? But also like my friends and I, we did a lot of stupid stuff when our parents were around growing up. And like that was part of growing up. Yeah. It was like we rode our bikes down hills that were too steep. And like we did dumb things and we lived to tell about it. So I don't want to deprive my son of like the joy of exploration. But I think like we live in a world where like the places you can explore are actually much scarier now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, last question on this topic. Would you ever go back to founding a company? Never. You're it's done. so much harder. It's so much. I stepped in and did interim CEO for one of my portfolio companies mm. from Uncork. I had forgotten how hard it is to be founder and CEO of a company. Because all the problems you get are the ones that no one else can solve. And it's not like being founder and CEO. One of my friends was like, I'm Series C. What advice you have me? I'm like, it never gets better. It just gets different. No. <laughs> and I was like, your problems will be different. It's not going to get better. Yeah. And I just think like the, and it's for me, it's the emotional investment required to be a really successful founder. Like I have a lot of emotional investment in precursors. There's days I want to tear what little hair I have out when I'm running this place. But we have three or four employees. And what I realized is like, you know, when you're the founder and CEO, you have hundreds of people sometimes whose careers and dreams are like, professionally at least, are like tied to decisions you make. Yeah. And like, that's a lot to manage. And as a company gets bigger, you're managing through other people. And I'm just sort of like, running a company is really stressful yeah. and it never gets better. And the nice thing about being an investor is sometimes people bring me problems. I'm like, here's what I think. Let me know what you decide to do. Mm. <laughs> like it's your decision you're yeah. the founder and CEO here's my input I agree this is a hard problem I'm happy to talk about it as much as you want but you have to make the call and it's like you know when you're in a board meeting you're like we have to lay off 10% of the people the people on the board don't have to do it the CEO has to go back sure, and look those people in the eye and have those conversations and deal with the dread of doing it the day before and the like drain of doing it the day after it's hard yeah so I have no desire to do that again. So instead, 
you put some money into uh, the podcasting equipment that you have here. Yes. <laughs> By the way, for, for those of you who are just tuning in and can't see this exceptionally handsome man in front of us, he's got perfect lighting. He's, he's dealing with a cold right now and still looks fantastic. He has perfect lighting, great sound. Um, <laughs> but I know that he takes a lot of uh, himself and he puts a lot of himself into the companies that he, he backs. And so I know that you say that, hey, look, founding a company is much more stressful, but that's not to say that you don't feel the stress. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that the pandemic hasn't been personally challenging for you too, right? Um, I, I would love to know, and for the, for the people out there, I want to know kind of uh, what has gotten you through the pandemic? Has it been the Peloton? Like what, what you know, what, what is what's yeah. driving you through the, the last year? Um, I think the hardest thing for me has been the erosion of like any difference between work and home. Mm. Like we had an office in Union Square before I worked a full day, but when I came home, I didn't have a nice home office. So the incentive to work at home was pretty low. Yeah. Uh, also, I wanted to see my family and talk to my wife when I came home. But now I'm in my office basically all day, every day. And the two things that have helped me I think one is the Peloton, which I didn't think I'd be into, but um, I've gotten into it. I like it. The other thing is I really enjoy cooking, and I bought a charcoal smoker, and a charcoal smoker for me is like this like jigsaw puzzle of like figuring out how to make it do the thing you want it to do. Yeah. And so I've actually really enjoyed learning how to like get a, I wouldn't say master, yeah. get a handle on my charcoal smoker, and I cook for my family five days a week most weeks oh wow Ooh, that is so timely wouldn't you say brie i think it is timely i think it is timely uh brie i think it's it's time for us to uh start a segment we like to call vc unboxing charles have you seen previous episodes I feel like I should have, but I haven't. <laughs> you really should have. <laughs> really should have. Also, we just want more listeners. I mean, I think there's everyone in my family and everyone in Bree's family. And then I don't know. I don't even, I don't think my family listens, but Josh does. <laughs> fair. That's, fair fair enough. Like my brother. Fair. Um, all right. Well, let's open up the gift box labeled C. And there are two of them. You only right. need, a, you need to open up one and you're good. Let's see, what can, where's my... By the way, for our audience here, this is really exceptionally difficult for me because Charles is a little bit under the weather and I know he's trying his hardest to power through his old fashioned. Brie has really left me in the dust. She is I'm not... I'm trying to get a drink right now. I'm she's like, not I doing your part. Okay. drink, it's oh on my. camera. Wow, I, all right. <laughs> Whoa. Charles, what do we have? What do we have? Wow. We've got, I actually just ran out of these. Okay. Fantastic. These are, I have the, this is like actually the one I like. These are like speed light charcoal lighters. Very nice. Yes. Oh my gosh. Ooh. Wow. Maple chunks. Yes. I cannot wait to use these. So let's, let's hit pause, not on the recording, but I just want to let you all know that when someone says maple chunks, 
and they don't know what they're talking about, let me let's back this up and just say that Charles is maniacal about smoking food. Yeah. And uh inside there's like three different types of wood for smoking wow plus some smoking paper some fire also starters. very millennial the pink butcher paper <laughs> very right. like the, very modern very millennial very, very millennial. millennial very modern uh I, I feel like it's the it's everything that you need to smoke the next 20 meals for this is and cedar cedar planks for salmon there you go sure must have wow yeah this is awesome thank you uh so let me tell you i I feel like every vc that we've talked to on this show needs a creative outlet like they've yearned for a creative outlet Mm -hmm. some of them brie are musically inclined uh you know others like immerse themselves in history and kind of learning more about you know, uh, World War II, whatever it might be. But you, you have taken your creative uh, mindset. Thanks, Brie. Brie, by the way, has finished her bottle of wine. Uh, nice. Taken your creative uh, impulses and, and turned them to cooking. I always liked cooking before. Yeah. And before, like, the challenge was when I was in the office, it was like, how do I get home from the office mm. in time to cook on weekdays? Unless I, like, prep way in advance, like, the night before. It was just too much to juggle. Yeah. And now that I'm here, I'm like, oh, I can prep during the day. Sure. It's easy. And so what is the most, I don't know, what is the most creative thing that you've cooked in the last month? And by the way, happy belated birthday. You celebrated your birthday May 9th. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. The most creative thing I cooked. Wow. Um, I can tell you the most stressful thing I cooked. <laughs> yes, that works. Which is, um, my father-in-law came to town, and he's like, um, my daughter tells me your ribs are really good. I'd love to have okay. some ribs. I was like, whoa, I really hadn't planned on that mm. today. This is sort of a last-minute thing. Yeah. And ribs need time. They need time, and like, yeah, they they were a seven out of ten. They weren't wasn't my best work, but wasn't my worst work. Okay, I'd probably say the most interesting thing I've cooked lately. Probably wagyu surf and turf. Okay, mm, yeah, probably the best what, thing I've cooked lately. What does that entail? So, okay, so you've got the wagyu beef, some kind of a yep. steak. Uh, yep. And then what kind of turf or surf? Sorry, excuse me. What kind of surf? Lobster tail. Okay. So the thing is, like yeah. during the pandemic, I went heavy on like frozen seafood and meat. Love it. And so I was like, oh, that's the other thing that changed the game for me. I was like, everything I want to cook, I have at my house. Yeah. I just have to like think a few hours ahead about what I want to cook. Right. Sure. sure. And pull that out. I love so it. what inspires you in the kitchen? I cook a lot of Italian. I don't think my family is in, as, as into it as I am, but I really like Italian food. Also, like, I just like recipes that have, like, I'd say, like, a medium version of technique. Mm, okay. Where there's something about it, like, I'm going to learn. Mm-hmm. And then I have, like, a handful of staples that I just make, like, every week because they're easy. Yeah. And those are? Uh, one is, like, a salmon, coconut, rice, and bok choy. That's one of them. Mm. Wow. 
One is uh, chicken thighs and wild rice, and then usually green beans. That's another definitely straight down the middle staple. <laughs> I First of all, I'm a, I love cooking, so you're speaking my language. I love cooking salmon and chicken thighs. Those are definitely two I go for. I like to do salmon with some sake now, so I get oh, yeah. that like yep. really nice like blackened kind of ends. Oh, yeah. And um we had a sake tasting at Berkland. And so I used the local sake, um, Sequoia sake, and it's there's a jalapeno infused one. And I it's amazing for salmon. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. I'll get you some. I can actually I'll try that. Yeah, I can vouch for that. Um uh, <laughs> I, I had said sake from Sequoia that was jalapeno infused for a birthday party last night. Or over the weekend, that was wonderful. Excellent. We got to get it to Charles. We got to get it to Charles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We'll get you. There's also a bourbon infused one. And since we know you like bourbon, Ooh. we'll have to get you that one as well. Oh, yeah. wow. They're fun to cook with. Yeah. Uh, so, Charles, you're a couple of years older than me. <laughs> Only a couple. I did the math. Uh, age is so important on this show. It's not. It's not. <laughs> I, I bring this up because I think I feel like we're we're in similar life you know moments right uh and for me you know i i've been an avid sports fan for a long time oh man um i love sports but um i've noticeably dropped off in in my love yeah i still love the athletics i still love the warriors and the lakers uh i still love you know um the 49ers to well actually you know I, I i used to love the 49ers after the kaepernick thing i i, I don't do it anymore but yep you know was it spencer turnbull he threw a no-no yeah for, for the D- detroit tigers right. yeah uh did you watch the game or did i did you- not it's funny the only sport i feel like i have time to watch honestly is soccer okay Okay. And a lot of it, I end up watching it on DVR in my office while I'm working. Interesting. Okay. I've tried to get my son into soccer from different countries too. Do you have Fubo? Fubo has a lot no, of No, like there's actually a lot of, like we have Dish. There's actually a lot of soccer. And I speak Spanish. So there's actually a lot of like yeah. on Telemundo. There's actually a lot of soccer on other channels, but I'm thinking I'm, I'm like inches from getting Fubo. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I got to tell you, as someone who has Fubo, who has NBC Sports, who has <laughs> just pretty much every package you can possibly get, I am so confused as to why. <laughs> and it's I know it's so difficult to keep up. And by the way, for the folks that are just listening, you have to understand Charles is wearing a Chelsea, you know, soccer club uh, pullover right now. Uh, Bree is probably drinking out of a Benfica mug, and I am I'm wearing proudly uh, my LFC hoodie. Um, I am all about soccer, uh, and I'm just—it's such a pain in the butt to keep keep up with all of the different you know areas. Forget about yeah. all of the services that you have to um, you know sign up for. Uh, you grew up in the U.S. like me. We're both avid sports fans. Neither of us spent any time in the U.K. from what I know. 
I mean, yeah. maybe you spent time in the UK. I don't think you did. Um, but we both are for these UK uh, English Premier League teams that have crazy intense fan bases. How the heck did you choose Chelsea? Oh my gosh, it's a really f- simple story. So I became a Chelsea fan in 2003. Wow. At the time, Manchester United was the only team that I feel like most Americans knew. And I was actually living in Spain at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. Before business school. And I was just like, all right, I can't be a Man U fam- fan because that feels like very lame because yeah. it's the only team that like Americans know. And the only other team that like the Globe and Mail covered to the same degree, it was when Abramovich bought the team. It was Chelsea. So I was like, all right. Juan Seba Verona, okay, I'm a Chelsea fan. Oh my God. And it was like super, it was like just that arbitrary. I was just like, this is the other team that seems interesting. I And he, I, that was when like Chelsea went on the, you know, the first of several. Yeah, Frank Lampard. And uh, yeah. I, I, so, okay. I love you for saying that because 2001, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, 1999, all of my buddies, uh, and I, I went to Vassar College. I was in an international dorm, and yeah. uh, I played squash, which is a very international sport. Yeah, all of my buddies were Manchester United fans, and I fucking hated that. And yep. at the time, Michael Owen and um, uh, my brain is is going now because I'm also a little bit tipsy. Uh, <laughs> we they had a great team. We had a great team. And and so I I gravitated toward Liverpool and I, you know, while everyone else was zigging, I zagged and I went to Liverpool yep. and I've been a Liverpool fan my whole life. Uh, is there something that we can infer about that between the both of us in terms of how we pick startups that we invest in just based on the fact that how we picked, you know, our favorite EPL team? Good taste. Good yeah. taste. Just good taste. Good taste. Good taste. I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel like I love being a Chelsea supporter. I've been to the bridge a few times for yeah. games and like, yeah. but it, like, it's sort of like all of the soccer teams that I like are all kind of random. Yeah. Like I've become a Cruz Azul fan for Liga MX. Yeah. Mostly just because I can't be a Club America fan because too many of my friends are cool. So I'm like, all right, I like, I like Cruz Azul, like good play. And so I just end up picking these teams sort of in response to like the dominant narrative. And then I get into them and I'm, I end up liking them. Uh, I think one thing can be inferred, and here's the thing. Uh, while it, it, it's always helpful to be a contrarian if you're going to a side that has good people on it. And uh, if that's something, then maybe that's why Liverpool and Chelsea are, are sort of both on, our, on the top of our list on that front. Yep. Um, but it, just like this pandemic has ravaged not only the EPL mad dog in the fog, uh, which is a Chelsea bar no longer in San Francisco. Uh, You know, we've been clinging on to um, things like the Peloton, which by the way, Charles, can we get your rider name? I was just see Hudson three. It's the most uninspired name ever. Okay. Everyone listening to our podcast, Follow Charles C. Hudson 3. As uninspiring as his name is, he's not. And and, uh, so you have to follow him on Peloton. But besides Peloton, we realize that 
that cooking has been that outlet for you during the pandemic. So with that, we really want you to open up box labeled S. Box S. Box S. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, wow. This is awesome. Wow. That's so cool. Thank you. And I don't even know what to get. I, you know what? Uh, I think that's what Actually, we were... that's not true. Actually, I know what I'm going to get. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you going to get? So for, for those of you just listening in, uh, there is a Sir Latab or Tab. I don't know how to pronounce it. Sir Latab. Uh, gift, gift certificate yeah. to, for Charles to spend however he would like. What are you going to get with it? I broke, um, I broke a star. I broke a star baking dish that my wife mm. uses that I need to replace because I use it too. Um, and I've been meaning to go get one, and they have the exact one I'm looking for. Ooh. Oh, so, perfect. Okay, Fantastic. that is perfect. Love it. Love it. Uh, so we are going to start our last segment of the evening. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. And wait, before we get started, oh, I, I want to yes. ask him a question. Absolutely. And it's pertinent to the next set, subset of questions. Do you know your Myers-Briggs? I do. What is yours? INTJ. <gasps> INTJ. Okay. Remember that as we go through these questions. I'm looking for... Maybe some patterns, but that's interesting. You're okay. INTJ, which which is a perfect segment. And by the way, Brie is the smarter one of the two of us here, so I have no idea true. what INTJ or whatever. You, you're going to have to. I'm also Dixon ENFP. I'm an ENFP. I can see that. She tells me this. I'm I an ENTP. I'm an ENTP. Yep. So Charles and I are each other's shadow. Yep. Oh man, we're gonna have to have like a whole new after the episode <laughs> episode about what that is. I have no idea what that is. Uh, well, anyway, our last segment is called the Giants Drink, and it's inspired by uh, not only um, Stephen Colbert uh, and Ender's Game, but uh, it's really a subset of questions from Chuck Klosterman's book entitled "Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs." And so we are going to give you hypotheticals and you oh, are wow. going to walk us through your answers to those hypotheticals. Wow. This is a lot. Do you get some water, have some, okay. uh, have a, have a sip of the drink because we're going to need you to buckle in. As you're drinking, the- I'll explain Chuck Klosterman. He has his 23 questions, and he says if he asks someone these 23 questions, he can know everything he needs to know about a person. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Bold. So we're going to give you some, right? Very right. bold. So we're going to give the listeners and us a taste of that in mm-hmm. seven randomly chosen questions. From- we will know, wow. like, roughly a third of you. Mm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the third of Let's you. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Let's start with number one. So let us assume that, Charles, you meet a rudimentary magician. And he can do five simple tricks. He can pull a rabbit out of his hat. He can make a coin disappear. He can turn the ace of spades into the joker card. 
and two others in a, in a similar vein. These are the only tricks he can learn anymore, and he can only do these five. However, it turns out that he does these five tricks with real magic, not sleight of hand wow. or any of that other stuff. It's not an illusion. So he's legitimately magical, but he's very limited in the scope and influence of his magic. Yeah. Would this person be more impressive to you than Albert Einstein? Wow. No. No. And why not? Um, just because I think Albert, like my impression of Albert Einstein was his ability to reason things that he didn't understand from sort of scratch was really, really high, mm -hmm. is my impression at least. And that's like a universal problem-solving skill that's not limited. And the magician can do something that's like truly magical, but in a smaller domain. I think I'd be more impressed by the person who has more range. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. Let's look at the next hypothetical. You want me to read this one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. At long last, someone invents the Dream VCR. This machine allows you to tape an entire evening worth of your own dreams, which you can then watch at your own leisure. However, the inventor of the Dream VCR will allow you to do this and use this device. You agree to a strange caveat. When you watch your dreams, you must do so with your family and your closest friends in the same <laughs> room. They get to watch your dreams along with you. And if you don't agree to this, can't use the dream vcr would you still do this definitely not <laughs> definitely not i will i strongly vehemently agree with charles on this one i don't want anyone seeing what i dream about the subconscious is weird it is and like it's working out all kinds of things that you might not even know well, you're secretly subconscious as an ENTP, which is mine. So I know how fucked up you are, Charles. That's right. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that stuff should live where it lives. So I have a question, though. Are you one of those folks? Um, because I am. I, I can recall vivid dreams. Not all of them, but I can recall some of them. Are you yep. worried about what the wife and the parents might see or... Do you have no idea, and you're just kind of like, "Oh man, the unknown can be interpreted." So oh no, I've had ways. some wild, I've had some wild and weird dreams. Yeah, that like I'm like, wow, my brain was working overtime, chewing on something, and I guess that's how it manifested. But yeah. I just wouldn't have to explain that thing was not what you thought it was. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Fair. I don't want. I don't want to explain my journey to you. It's mine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Uh, all right. Here's here's our our next one. So defying all expectation, a group of Scottish marine biologists capture a live Loch Ness monster. And in an almost unbelievable coincidence, a bear hunter in the Pacific Northwest shoots a Sasquatch in the thigh. And zoologists can now take, you know, this furry monstrosity into ca captivity. Uh, and these events happen on the same afternoon that evening. However, the president announces he might have, or that he does have thyroid cancer and will undergo a biopsy later that week. 
If you are the front page editor of the New York Times, what do you play as the biggest story? Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> the Loch Ness Monster. Okay. <laughs> Something about Nessie? What is it? Presidents get ill yeah. all the time. Yeah. It's, it'll be just as newsworthy. And I feel like Loch Ness Monster is one of these things that, like, we're like Sasquatch, we're just not really sure it actually exists. Sure. But it I feel like exist. to me the the bar exist. and to me the bar for for Nessie feels higher than Sasquatch. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a strong. I I tend to believe that if Sasquatch is alive, it's just sort of like it could be like a big bear on its hind legs for all we like. Yeah, like we we need DNA proof for that. Yes, you know it's it's a step above like the primitive fish that they just found, right? That like predates dinosaurs. It's a step above yeah. that. But it's certainly I, doable. I just want to know how Nessie hid for that long. Yeah, that's a, presumably that's a Nessie's like not small. No, and that's like a how good did point. Nessie evade detection of any sort for that long? Right, Charles, have you been to the Loch Ness? I have not. Have you? I have, and the Loch Ness is literally a colony. It's the, there's a colony of bacteria underneath that moves across the lake every three hours, giving it that lap that makes it look like there's a monster on top. So that's what the Loch Ness Monster is. It, there, it really does exist as a large group of ancient bacteria. So Moving. Yep. Moving. Wow. Yeah. That's what I learned at the museum. And I think now I don't even have to go to the museum. <laughs> I feel bad about tourism. Just save me a trip. <laughs> Just save you me don't, a trip. The, weather, the weather's shit, you know. But the, <laughs> yep. but the whiskey is good, it's Charles. epic, I'm sure. The whiskey I'm sure it's epic. is great. You will yeah. love it. There's um, there's a lot of Glenfiddich is there. Uh, good. Yeah, Glenfiddich is good. Yeah. Glenlivet. You know, lots of good good uh, whiskey distilleries. So worth a trip. In your All, of All of the Glens. All of the Glens. <laughs> All of the Glens. All of the Glens. <laughs> Uh, all right. I love it. <laughs> okay. Next one. Yes, I'm going to do go. this one. I, yeah, this, is my fav- this is my favorite question. And the reason uh, we'll get to later after you answer it. We met, you meet a wizard in downtown San Francisco. The wizard tells you he can make you more attractive if you pay him money. When you ask him how this process worked, the wizard points to a random person right on the street, maybe somewhere on market, homeless guy. You look at this random stranger, the wizard says, I will now make them a dollar more attractive. He waves his magic wand. Ostensibly, this person physically does not change at all. However, you can almost tell like this person is more appealing. The tangible difference is invisible to the naked eye, but you can't deny that they are vaguely more sexier, especially because they're homeless. This wizard has a weird rule, though. You can only pay him once. You can't keep giving him money until you're satisfied. You can only give him one lump Mm. sum up front. How much cash do you give this wizard? Twenty-five bucks. Yeah, that's standard. Yeah, twenty-five dollars. I've asked this question to many people, and the common answer is twenty to twenty-five dollars. Really. Yeah, that is the most common answer. Very basic. Most people are probably just a bunch of vain people who are like, "I'm good looking already. Like, what could what could possibly be improved?" Well, wait, are you are you is is that what your mind was thinking? I I I want to know. <laughs> I I honestly thought like, how much money would I pay for an arbitrary improvement? Yeah. Without knowing, I was like something I would not deeply regret. Yeah. 
if I didn't, if it were imperceptible. Okay. That was like 20 to 25 bucks. That's a, that's an amount of money I would risk. Wow. I think, I think too, just observing living in San Francisco, I wear makeup less here. Like I actually would pay him yeah. to make me uglier. So um, I like, it's not really a thing here in San Francisco yeah. looking the best, but if you live in LA, you might pay him like thousands of dollars. But I also think like, I don't know what a million dollars, like I also don't like know what a million dollars would do. Right. Like what would a million, dollars I don't know. Do? Denzel like, and his heyday. Hey, maybe a million dollars for that. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably pay a million dollars for that. Okay. Yeah, my, my mind yeah. is going all over the place, but I have to ask you, do you think that the young Charles Hudson that went off to Pamplona and the running of the Bulls, do you think that Charles Hudson would pay more or less? Ooh. Probably more. Probably more. There it is. I pay 50, 75 bucks. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Not, same word of magnitude. Not, not crazy. Not, not crazy. crazy I mean, you're not like giving out like a couple of grand to this wizard. It's hard for me to know what that would translate into. What if you were in Spain? If you so, if you were in Spain and the wizard was in Spain, you'd give him like seventy-five to a hundred bucks. Versus San Francisco, twenty-five bucks. Yeah, I'd give him a couple hundred bucks in Spain. It might be interesting just to feel like what it's like (laughs) to be super good-looking in Spain. Yeah, that might just be an interesting experiment. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, look, I, I think. My answer would be whatever money would make Laura just entirely enamored with me and forget about all the stupid things that I do. <laughs> good answer. So good answer. I, that might be a thousand dollars. I don't know. I don't know. But whatever that is, I'm willing to pay it. Um, okay. All right. Good, good answer, Vic. Good answer. <laughs> Thank you. Honest um, answer. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's as honest as I can get. Uh, I'm going to send that to Laura on Valentine's Day. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I think she's <laughs> listening in right now. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> here's another hypothetical for you. Second okay. to last. Uh, your best friend is taking a nap on the floor of your living room. This is unlike your Stanford days uh, when you okay. visited. Right. Suddenly you're faced with a bizarre existential problem that this friend is going to die unless you kick them as hard as you can in the rib cage. But if you don't kick them while they slumber, they will never wake up. However, you can never explain this to your friend. And if you later inform them then that you did save their life by kicking them in the rib cage, they'll die from that. So you have to kick them in the ribs and you can't tell them why. What excuse will you fabricate to explain this attack? Assuming you kick your friend in the ribs. Uh, I would still kick them. And I would just tell them I was getting them back for some long held grudge that I can't get into. Hmm. Keep do them alive. You, do you, do you hold longstanding grudges? What, Not really. what, what, no. Lots of other people do. So I think it'd be credible. Okay. Fair. I like that's how he thinks about wow. it. <laughs> that is, that is a, a, a better answer than I was expecting. <laughs> you gotta tell them something that will like <laughs> shut off the conversation sure of course sure yeah absolutely. all right i've got okay. this next one okay for whatever reason two unauthorized movies are made about your life the first is an independently released documentary primarily comprised of interviews of people who know you and bootleg footage from your actual life so like this podcast right here 
Critics are describing this documentary as brutally honest and relentlessly fair. Meanwhile, Columbia TriStar has produced a big budget biopic of your life, casting major Hollywood stars as you are as you and all of your acquaintances. Though the movie is not really based on actual events, screenwriters have taken some liberties, but and critics are split yeah. on the merits of the film. But audiences, audiences love it. It's like IMDB uh 8.1. Yeah. Which film would you be most interested in seeing and who plays you in the blockbuster? Definitely the first one. Oh, mm. okay. Oh, yeah. Documentary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This yeah. podcast makes it. I definitely would want to know that. <laughs> what do you think Can is you play the most... me? Yeah. In the main. Oh, God. I don't know. Can we bring Michael B. Jordan back? Can we bring him back? <laughs> oh, that's that is a good resurrection. Yeah, if I bring him back. Bring him back. I mean, please bring him back. I like I like that guy. Yeah. Forget playing you. Yeah. <laughs> Just bring him back. No, yeah. oh, Michael B. Jordan. That's an interesting casting choice. I mean, what is the pivotal moment? What's the 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 turning point in the documentary of Charles Hudson? Uh, probably moving to California. I just would like like to see what people like. I actually would be curious to see what people say. Yeah, they're thinking it anyway. So, might as well have them say it. Yeah. When you look back on your career, I know you haven't mentioned it, uh, but what do you want people to say? Like, what is the, how do you want people to summarize it? I want them to say, like, he did a really good job and he helped a lot of people. Yeah. Those two things, I feel like if you just help people and you don't do a good job as a VC, you don't stay in business. And if you just put up good returns and you don't help people, that would be really unsatisfying to me. So I hear this pattern of wanting to help people. Where do you think that drive comes from? Where is that? Is that your parents? Is that some influence in your life? I think probably from my parents. Also, I moved to Michigan, like not knowing anything about California. And I feel like there's a bunch of people who helped me figure out how this place works. And without that, it would have been really hard to achieve anything, like really difficult. Well, I I speak for Bree a little bit here, but the rest of the the folks at at Berkland and and Green Cow, when I say it was a total pleasure to have Absolutely. you on. Uh, honestly, I can't think of uh, a better person to have on um, uh, to to. Sh- start us out of the gate in season two than uh than you charles and uh just thank you for coming by um before you go we have two things number one for okay. participating in that crazy psychoanalyst uh <laughs> of uh of you uh we have one final vc unboxing which is labeled oh, wow. v uh so please open that up now is that the bag it is yes. the bag This was the hardest one to keep away from my son. Is it? Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love we it. We got your little Detroit vest yes, because we want I you to it. remember your roots. 
Of course. I love it. Thank you so much. That's so kind. This was the hardest one of all the things to keep my son out of. <laughs> I can't wind up. Take all the tissue paper out of the bag. You all are too kind. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we we can't take the Detroit out of uh, the 22-year now San Francisco native, but uh, we wouldn't want to. Uh, and we're, we're glad to have you on. Um, as we normally do, uh, we would love for you to take the last 20 seconds to um, toast us out. Uh, yeah. And um, this is your time to mention a charity, your wife, your kid, whatever you want. This is your 20 seconds to promote anything. Yeah, well, cheers, everybody. Um, I really hope as things reopen, people can give money to the SF Marin Food Bank. It's a really important charity in San Francisco that helps feed a lot of people. And even though the pandemic is coming to an end, hunger isn't. And um, pre-pandemic, our firm and a bunch of our founders used to volunteer there a couple times a year, packing food in boxes. And it's a nonprofit that I think does excellent work for the community. And so can't recommend giving them money highly enough. We love it. Uh, again, thank you so much. Charles, to you. Cheers. Bree, Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Enjoyed this episode of Drinks with a VC? Please be sure to hit those like, share, and subscribe buttons on Apple, Spotify, Google, YouTube, or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcasts.